Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter of James, Wisdom for Wholeness. Here, James uses Old Testament wisdom literature, as well as teaching from his own half-brother Jesus, to call the church throughout the age to a life wholly devoted to God. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life, so as to make people complete in him. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he we blessed in his doing. Let's pray together. God, I realize we just prayed before. We've prayed a couple times already, and we're asking that we would be people of prayer anyway because we need you to step into our hearts and lives and change us. We ask you now, as we preach the word to each other, that you would take this and plant it deep in our hearts, take root and bring forth fruit. Forth fruit. God, we need you to change us. We cry out as beggars to the one who can give life. We believe to help our unbelief. We cry to you for faith and wisdom as we read your, read your text and you do your work in us. May you be faithful, God, to complete the work that you started in us and may you begin it again in some new people here today that do not know Jesus Christ or maybe they thought they knew Jesus Christ. But James will show us that they must receive the implanted word and do. Thank you, God, for your son, Jesus Christ. We bless your name. It's in your name we pray, amen. If you know anything about James at all, if you're maybe just jumped in today to our church and you haven't been here before and we haven't been running through James together, normally you know at least one or two things about the book of James. Usually people think this is the book where it's uh, counted all joy when you fall into diverse trials. Usually everyone thinks about that one. Or the other one is to be a doer of the word. Usually they, when you're in some sort of discussion about the way Paul presents salvation and the way that James presents salvation, you usually can recall James is about, hey, you need to be a doer of the word. Well, today we're at that text. We're here ready to interpret, read, and digest this famous passage. And the beauty is that how we got here, right? The beauty is that I'm not jumping right into this text with zero context, and neither are you. Now you have seen it, how he develops, and he understands his audience, how he understands their situation, what he's been telling them to do, helping them understand their big picture, what wisdom looks like. And now we understand as we get closer what he's trying to do. We followed his flow of thought up to this point, knowing that he desires us to have an inward change sprouting from the reception of the plant implanted word. Our passage today is a continuation of James' discussion on how we ought to receive wisdom. He's exhorted us to be quick to hear and to receive the implanted word, the word of truth that he referenced back in verse 18, which is the gospel. But today's message, today's passage, is all about one thing. It's the clarification of what it means to receive the word, to receive the implanted word. In other words, what does it look like? Doing. That may sound strange, but that's exactly where he goes here. What does it mean to receive the implanted word? Simply to do it. And we'll explain that today. 
My plan for us is to take us through and explain some of the pieces as we go along through this passage. We need to stop and understand the analogy. It somewhat seems almost sloppy and incomplete. We'll explain that, this idea of looking into a mirror. And then we'll come back and keep working on the rest of the pieces so that we may understand what it means to be a doer, not just our own thoughts about that. Again, when we come and we pluck these verses out of the context, we can kind of fill in all the details that we want to and make it sound the way that we want it to sound. We can't do that. Never should you do that. That's a rule. Don't just take it without the context. And so today, that's why we preach expositorily over and over again. We're stepping through the text so that when we get here, we realize there's a background. And he's not saying certain things because he's already said other things. And so we want to look at the rest of these pieces and realize what he's telling us. Now, as far as application today, the application for today is the entire sermon. His whole point here, James is making application of what he had just told us about being one who receives the implanted word. And so it is on us to hear this as him saying, let me step away from what I just told you and tell you how it applies to your life, but be doers of the word. So this is our course for today, what we're trying to get to. James has just finished telling us that we must receive with meekness or with humility or with hands out, with the confidence that comes with a beggar and someone who is spiritually bankrupt in need of everything. He's told us that we must receive with meekness the implanted word. We spent uh, time understanding the strong connection to the word of truth, the gospel, back in verse 20. But I failed to help us make one more connection that I think I should have, and I'm excited to tell you today. It's a much larger more ancient concept that I think is very important to us. What I mean is that this implanted word is something that we cannot get a hold of ourselves. It's implanted. It's something that is given to us. It's something that is put inside us. It's something that is written on our hearts. This probably brings a passage to mind. It's exactly where we're going. Jeremiah talks about this. Jeremiah 31. I want to read a section. I want you to listen how the prophet talks about what God will do in his people. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Take a listen. I want you to, again, clue in on what God will do for his people. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I told them by the, excuse me, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Wow! This is so huge to them. This is not what they're experiencing right now. This is a prophecy of what will come. Now, we stand on the other side of the cross. We stand seeing back and understanding Jeremiah 31 as, whoa, this is us. This is what happened in Jesus, and now we stand here, knowing that Jesus was the one who inaugurated the new covenant. It is in the new covenant that we find God writing on our hearts. And in fact, giving us new hearts. Uh, Ezekiel's going to go a little bit further in Ezekiel 36, 26. He says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put away my spirit, excuse me, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. James is reminding us that we are experiencing the fulfillment of these wonderful promises. We are now called to receive this implanted word. We talked about this, the gospel, the good news that we can know this God the glorious truth that God has stepped in to secure our salvation and our obedience. But precisely because of this, because he has completed this work in Christ, and because he guarantees the efficacy of his new covenant, it's going to work, he is able to show them, James is able to show them what a person with a new heart looks like. He is going to be able to show them that someone that's been changed by the gospel has been changed indeed. Like they actually, something has changed about them. This is where we finally come to verse 22. James is now coming to this congregation with a serious heart-checking question. Do you really know what it means to receive the implanted word? I just told you to do it, but do you really get it? Are you sure you understand what I mean when I say, not just hear the word, but receive the implanted word? If you don't, let me tell you. James is coming to him saying this. And he's, if you remember back to verse 13, we went back and looked at 13. James helped guard against believing that God was the author of sinful temptations. We kind of took an aside there. Do you remember that? We started out saying these things about trials being from God. But the abuse of that is when we say that temptations to sin are from God. And James waves his finger and says, no, 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 no. Don't be deceived. That's not true. God is not the author of evil. Neither can he touch evil. So he's kind of guarding that. He clarified what it meant for them and explained that God ordains and uses trials in a Christian's life, not temptations to evil. He's doing a similar thing here today. He is protecting the truth of the statements that he has already made by clarifying what he means to receive the implanted word. We've heard the command clearly, you ought to receive the implanted word. Verse 22. But, I'm clarifying here guys, but be doers of the word. And not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The phrase, practice what you preach, may come to your mind. And that would be right. The ancient wise men would say the same thing throughout all their writings. Men like Plato, Aristotle, Seneca, and others. But this isn't the same idea exactly. There is a hint of truth to it. But usually what they said, what they were trying to live out, they would have to figure out how to do that so that it would match those things. That's not what's going on here. Remember that we talked about it actually the other week. Instead of saying the put off, put on principle, remember he says put off, receive the implanted word. He's not, he's not interested in making you do a bunch of stuff to make you match back. Instead, his concern is that you would receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls, which is able actually to do something in your life. That's what he's concerned with. The implanted word then will change you. It will change the way that you do your life. It will free you to obey and be consistent with all that the gospel assumes. It's almost like when you receive the implanted word, or for clarification, when you believe the gospel, it empowers you to obey Jesus, to love him, to love the things that he loves, to be like him, and to do the things that are consistent with the implanted word. And simply, if you don't do these things, you're a fraud. Worse yet, you may not even know that you're a fraud. 
you are deceived. The word James uses here is not the same word that he used back in verse 16. If you go to 16, you'll see that he uses the word deceived. Not the same word. In 16, he used something that meant like to be misled or lead astray. Sometimes it might not even be on purpose. But in verse 22, our verb for deceive is far more dangerous. It is deception that ends in a fraudulent claim. We see this, Paul uses the same word, except he says delude, but I'll read it to you from Colossians 2.4. Paul is warning the church not to be led astray but from the faith by those that were of these clever philosophical ideas instead of holding tightly to Christ. Paul says this, I say this in order that no one may delude or deceive you with plausible arguments. This is the same word that James is using. He's trying to make sure that you are not deceived thinking that you are something that you clearly are not. If you are one who is a hearer only, not doing what is consistent with the gospel, you are deceived into thinking that you have received the implanted word. You think that you do. When in reality, you're not really a believer at all. In verses 23 through 25, James, as a patient pastor and loving communicator, takes it a step further. He is going to give us an analogy. He's going to talk about these two different people, the hearer and the doer. And he's going to give us two things about them. First, he's going to show us the difference between the hearer only and the doer. But then he's going to go a step farther, and he is going to show us what it specifically looks like for the doer of the word, what he looks like and what he does. What are his actions? Since the whole tenor of the passage is that you're supposed to be a doer of the word, this is where we're supposed to clue in. Verse 23 and 24. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he's like. The statement is pretty straightforward. The hearer, does three, the hearer only does three things. He looks at his face in the mirror, he goes away, and he forgets what he looks like. That's it. There's no deeper theological meaning. We don't have to read into the text saying, well, this is that and this is this. There's code here. It's a simple analogy. That's all it is. This guy goes, he looks into a mirror, he walks away, and he forgets. The significance for us is not in this part yet. The significance for us is the comparison of the next part as he compares the one who is the doer of the word. Verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. You should notice here that we don't have a mirror or equivalent for the rest of the analogy. So he starts this analogy, but where did the rest of that nice, neat analogy go? He didn't didn't finish it off. I'm expecting him to say something like, the doer of the word looks in the mirror, goes away, and remembers, or something like that. But he doesn't say that. Instead, James doesn't go back to the other half of the analogy at all. Instead, he begins talking about what the doer of the word actually should do in real life without exactly completing the other half of the analogy. The analogy is helpful for us to get in the right frame of mind, and it helps us so that we would see what we're looking for. We know that both people hear the word, the gospel, or how he says it, they both look. One looks in the mirror, one looks in the law of liberty. But what then? What happens after that? Instead of giving us the other half of the analogy, he skips right to the most important part, the meaning, the meaning of this, what that person is supposed to look like. He's going to have to explain the meaning anyway. In a sense, what he's doing is saying this, you and I 
are smart enough to intuitively fill in the gaps of this analogy and benefit from him going straight to the heart of the matter, straight to what matters, and try to make sure he explains it to us, the description of the doer. If you are like a list person, if you take notes, it might be helpful for you to list what the things that the hearer only does and the things that the doer does. I'm going to just simply listen for you to be pretty simple. The hearer only does three things. We already talked about this. He looks, he goes away, he forgets. That's it. That's the analogy. The doer, he looks, he perseveres. He does not forget, but rather he acts. The value of the analogy is found in how we relate back to the first part. Unless you've just stumbled off the Appalachian Trail and you don't know anything about civilization, most of us can understand the idea of a mirror. Even if, if even back in this time, he's using this analogy, so it's not new. So everyone can understand when he used the analogy of a mirror to look in it, they understood exactly what he was talking about. In fact, if you don't know, we have mirrors in our restroom. And if you want to fulfill this analogy, feel free, after we're done, you can go back and look at your face in the mirror to make sure that you get this analogy. Because this is so simple, though, it's quite easy for us to point out many differences and, and between the hearer and, the, and the, the doer, and it's easy to make all kinds of different uh, observations about this text. But I don't want us to get distracted. It's very easy to be distracted here. Trust me, I was distracted all week by this. It was really good. But I realize that James is trying to push us to a specific end, not for us to be caught up in all the minutia. What you should know is in verses 23 and 24, the word for looks is different from the word looks in 25. The verb that he uses in Greek is a different word. In your ESV version there in front of you, it has the same word, to look. Now, on its surface, that got me excited, like, oh man, there's something more here. Maybe I'm missing a piece of this and we need to really clue in here. He uses the word in verse 25, it's kind of the idea of to look through or to stoop down. The idea in 23 and 24 is to consider and to understand. Now, again, this is a kind of a cool preaching point and be like, oh, we really need to stoop down and like really get into the word really far, guys. But that's not James's point here. He keeps going with the analogy, so it's not, it's not our place to jump in and take one part of it and make that the main point. So I would challenge us to pull back out. I, again, that'll preach. It's fun to preach like these little details, but my job is not to be novel to you. My job is to bring the text and expose it clearly so that you can understand it. We can walk away with what James is trying to tell us, not what we want to find interesting about the way that he spoke to us. That's not the point. We want to hear what he has to say to us in his reference points that make him make, get his point across deliberately. So what we need to do then is look at the points of difference between the two people and ask ourselves, honestly, which one do we look like? And as we find ourselves lacking, we ought to look to James' description of the doer, and we ought to seek to do the same way that he does. That being said, what does the doer look like? Now that we've gone through the analogy, I want to point out four things that we see him describing of the doer. First one, he looks into the perfect law of liberty. Second, he perseveres. Third, he does not forget but acts. And fourth, something that's happening to him, he is blessed. Number one, he looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty. I already mentioned that this word for look is different from the other ones. Um, but why? If it's, if, it's, if it's different, there's got to be some sort of point here. 
you would think he would use the same word if he wasn't trying to point out something. Is it more important to stoop down or look through the word than it is to consider and really understand? No. Both of these things make good sense. They're good ways for us to approach the word. James changes almost everything, though, about the second half. Almost everything is different. So he does this thing in helping us see that just this word alone is not one thing alone that we should zone in on, but rather it's one of the many things that have changed to help us to see overall the huge difference between the here only and the one who does, the doer. It's one of many pieces that show us that he's completely different. So it isn't the main point, but we ought to pull this from there and understand that the one he looks. But as an aside, it is kind of an aside, but it's important because he is teaching us through this. I want us to look at this idea of the perfect law of liberty. This would strike us because we haven't seen this term at all yet in James' book, in his, in his sermon. We need to stop and examine this to understand both our theology and how the Old Testament works in the New Testament. This is really important stuff. It helps us understand who we are and how we view the Old Testament and specifically the law. He says that the doer looks into the perfect law of liberty. What is that? What is he referring when he talks about the law? Why does he call it perfect? And what's this about liberty or freedom? There's a significant change, first of all, with the object, right? We are expecting him to continue to use the word, word. He's been talking about the implanted word, the word of truth, and now he says the law. Why make the big change, James? Well, first of all, James is not abandoning the Old Testament Scriptures. He's not abandoning the law of Moses. If you remember what Jesus said, he said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. James is in the same strand. He is not getting rid of or doing away with that and saying, I just got everything that's new. You can toss all that out. Instead, he's referring to that, bringing it back in. He's showing its continuity with Jesus' message of the gospel. Jesus has come and everything is different now. And if you know the Old Testament scriptures, Psalm 19.7 is going to pop up and or at least ring around in your head because you know it says that the, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. This isn't, a, it isn't like a, a distracting thing for you because you know this is what it's been referred to before. So when James calls it the perfect law, that makes sense. But then when he calls it the perfect law of liberty, he's gone a step further. And in the context of preaching the gospel, the implanted truth, uh, the truth of the word, word of truth, what is he talking about? If we go on like this, we see that James is bringing in a known idea, this idea of the law being perfect. He's showing also that <laughs> he's already brought it up in verse 4 and verse 17. He's brought up this idea of perfect. God is a perfect gift giver. His goal for the people he's writing to is that they would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This idea of wholeness, this idea of spiritual maturity, character that is like God's, single-mindedness. Verse 7 and 14, 4 and 17 again gives us the insight on what he means when he talks about the Word as described as something that makes it perfect. It is perfect. It is wholly devoted to God. It is most importantly that which can make a Christian perfect. And this other idea, liberty. Now we get to this. Okay, we understand you're using that and you're bringing into your idea of this, which can make us perfect and whole. What about this idea of liberty or freedom? Why bring this in, James? I began today by talking about the implanted word, which we reference back to the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 
which was implanted, which was put inside of us, which was written on our hearts. This is important because now we're using this word to complete the allusion to the new covenant and all of its promises within our own hearts. This law, the law of Moses, properly interpreted and expanded by Jesus is both perfect and one that leads to freedom or liberty. Because of the law that was put within us, because of the power of Jesus conquering sin and death on the cross, because of the indwelling spirit, we are now free to obey the law and are helped to do so. The implanted word is the perfect law of liberty and all that goes along with that. Praise God. So, this is the first thing that he does. He looks into the perfect law of liberty. The second thing that he does, he perseveres. This is really interesting, and I didn't catch it at first in my study. I didn't realize the word connection that I should have, and I'll talk about it in a minute. But first, there's a very simple difference between the hearer only and the doer. The hearer only goes away. That's it. He goes away. The analogy shows that he looks and he goes away. It doesn't seem to be priority for him, and he just goes away. Not so with the doer. He perseveres. He either stays in the word or the law, or I would argue he takes the law with him. What do I mean by that? If you think about a few Old Testament passages, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Moses, Deuteronomy 6, he says these words when he's talking to the people about the law in their hearts. He says in verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk about them by the way, when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And if that's not enough, let's go to Psalm 119.11. David says, I have stored up your word in my heart. And if that's not enough, how about Proverbs 6.21? To bind them on your heart always, to tie them around your neck that these things are always a part of who we are. I think we can make a case that the doer of the word is dominated by the word of God. But there's something else here. I want you to know that the word for persevere, this shouldn't be surprising, but it was to me, the word for persevere contains the exact same root word that we find in our word steadfast. It's the same root word in Greek that he's coming upon. And he's trying to show us that there's a connection back to what he's even telling us to do, to be steadfast, to endure. The doer perseveres in his looking into the perfect law of liberty and then does it. James is encouraging us, even in the task of receiving the implanted word, to be steadfast, to persevere, to endure through the receiving it and looking into the gospel. It's not as though this person goes away. It is part of his life, and he perseveres in this. That means when it's difficult. So, number three now. So we've got he looked, he persevered. Number three says he does not forget, but he acts. If you're to read Deuteronomy 8 and 9, and feel free to go back and read it, but you're going to notice two main ideas that come up over and over and over again. Remember and don't forget. Essentially the same ideas, but a little bit different on purpose. Remember and don't forget. The hearer only is not changed by the message of good news. He is like the children of Israel who had the opportunity to hear the message of God, who had the law preached to them over and over and over again, and they forgot it. Forgetting God 
and his word is a hallmark of one who is a hearer only. He goes away and forgets the truth, the glorious truth that can set him free and make him perfect in Christ. The doer does not forget. He is not a hearer of forgetfulness, but rather a doer of work. He acts. He does something with what he has received. The person acts in accordance with God's character, with who he really is in Christ Jesus. He will obey the commands of Christ. He will pursue the things that Jesus pursues. How do I do what Jesus commanded and pursued? How do I know? Read the Bible. All parts of it, even the old stuff. Read it. This is how we know what Jesus commanded us to do. Number four, he is blessed. I love this. The person who has received the implanted word, who perseveres in the perfect law of liberty and acts in accordance with it, he is blessed. Now remember, we've had this discussion already. What do we mean? We're not talking hashtag blessed as though a big fancy car and all the things that go along with it is what we mean by blessed. We don't mean that. When Jesus says blessed are the persecuted for my name's sake, it's very different from what our world sees as blessed. Forgetting God and his word again, like we said, is a mistake. When it brings us to this point, though, and remembering this man is blessed. We've talked about this, and James is showing us that this is divine favor. This is the idea that we talked about in verse 12, that Jesus, that he said all the things that came along with the idea in the Beatitudes, part of what Dan read this morning, the first half, especially in chapter 5 of Matthew. This is not hashtag blessed, but rather what Jesus says about the one who is blessed, who he has divine favor on. You don't get to set the rules who is blessed. He does. It's his favor not yours, or the world around us, that they think you're favored. It has ramifications now, of course, but it is far more future-reaching. It's looking to that glorious day when we will, in the future, be with Christ in heaven, in eternity, and all things will be made right because Jesus wins. The end. (laughs) Jesus wins. There's no one else that can even stand up to him, just to let you know. It has ramifications now. And this is about how God sees his people. They are blessed. I want to point out one more thing, though. Jordan and I were discussing this, and he said it so succinctly, which doesn't happen very often. Um, This is, he said it so succinctly, this is not just another way to be blessed. Remember we got to verse 12 after working through the text and seeing trial and being faithful and and following and trusting Christ, and then blessed is he at steadfast. This is not another way to get there. That's a mistake. Now we have a second way as though, Lord, he can bless us through this way or bless us that way. You can choose one. No, no, no. James connects these two groups of people with the designation of being blessed. Actually, the only way to make it through the trial with steadfastness is to be a doer of the word. To receive the implanted word and to be a doer. That's the only way that you can make it through these trials. That's the only way you could ever get to that first idea of being blessed because you're steadfast. Actually, the only way is through this obedience. You want to trust God and see him work steadfastness in you for the completion, your completion and joy? Then receive the implanted word. That's the way to do it. Believe the gospel. Be a doer of the word. This blessing is for those who have believed that God's message and perspective, his wisdom, is the truth, and it ought to be followed then. 
That man is blessed. And so we've made it through our text for today. Um, the application like we talked about, we're not done yet. The application that we talked about is the entire sermon. The whole thing explains to us what we're supposed to be doing. The word in obedience to the characteristics of the gospel and who God is in all of his ways. Uh, the sermon is for us, though, very specifically, that we must understand what it means to know and love Jesus Christ as he has explained in the gospel. If it is foreign to you, or if it doesn't make any sense to you to treasure Jesus, when I say those words, treasure Jesus, or to want him or to desire to know him, or if it doesn't make sense to you, to see his commandments are actually good and sweet things to you. Or if you can't say that you know what it means to taste and see that the Lord is good, that he himself is good. If, if, if you think that this stuff is for those who are spiritually more mature, not you. Or as if all this stuff doesn't really matter. If that's true, if any of this stuff is true, you're a hearer only. You're not a doer. Not treasuring Jesus is evidence of not receiving the gospel. You haven't received the implanted word, and you have not obeyed. Showing up to church and maybe even giving a little bit is not being a doer of the word. We are talking about a serious interaction with the Lord of creation, one that changes every part of your life, starting and staying here, in your inner being, where the real you is. We're talking about believing, believing the gospel. We're talking about trusting him and him alone. Because you trust him, if you trust him and him alone, you realize that you've taken all the powerful, wonderful, fulfilling safety nets that our world has to offer and clipped them. That they will not catch you. That your insurance policy, whatever it is, friends, family, money, houses, fill in the blank, you clip it because you realize the only person who could ever catch you was Jesus Christ. You see that the things that every other person trusts in and treasures always ends up leading to hell. That's not harsh reality to hurt. That's, to, that's because I love you. That's because I love the world and I want them to be like Jesus does for them to see that this will not satisfy True faith in Christ is that which is re has released its grip on all the other worldly saviors and holds tightly and lovingly and desperately to the one who is beautiful and glorious and perfect and gracious and powerful and kind and gentle and merciful and sovereign over all and holds gently desperately to him. That is why James' admonition to us is to receive the implanted word, the gospel. Jesus is everything. You can have everything else the world has and you don't have Jesus. You have nothing. You get nothing. I, I can scream and it doesn't matter. I'm not, I'm not trying to scare or, or, or be outlandish. But you get nothing with this world. It is only Jesus Christ and Him crucified that can save your soul. But it's not ending there. And He gives you His, person, his righteousness for you. That's amazing. That is, that should make us continue to worship through singing, through talking about it, through telling everyone around us. I'm going off notes here. Like, it's just the fact that you can't help yourself but bubble over with praise to God because he is the king of universe. 
not the people that run some of the governments here. He is the king, and he will always have the last say. And it's that God that we come back to and worship. He knows that if Jesus is not the most glorious, wonderful, interesting, compelling, desireful thing in your life, then you will be lost. You will be deceived. And ultimately, your idols will destroy you. Your idols will take you to hell. Today's message is not about, I don't know, the hundred people in here going back and sitting down and making sure they put a bunch of new things on their to-do list, the good things that they ought to do, and to make sure that their life looks a certain way. That's not the message today. You've missed the point if this is what you think we're trying to do. The point of James's exhortation today is to be real Christians. Those who have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, receiving the implanted word. The answer to a life that has no good works is not to do some more good works. That's not how we pursue this. That can't do anything that produces wax fruit. The answer is found when you turn away from these worthless idols and cling tightly and desperately to Jesus and him alone. Friend, don't be deceived. You're sitting here today, hearing the word preached does not make you a real Christian. It doesn't. It doesn't save you. Thank God that you're here hearing the word preached, listening to it, but that's not enough. The rest of the equation also isn't to go back out and do some more good works. It doesn't impress anybody. It's actually filthy rags to God. The rest of the equation isn't that. Listening to the word is not enough. You must receive it. You must then do it. You must believe that it's true. You must persevere in the law of liberty. Listen, you must be a hearer, a receiver, a perseverer, and you must be a doer. That's what James show us is true belief. This is how it works when you've been changed by the gospel. When we talk about quoting John 3.16, which is wonderful and glorious, whoever believes in him, it's not, or, or, or Romans 10.13, calling upon the name of the Lord, all that we just talked about is involved. Like it's not as though they're saying something different than James is saying. They're not. They're, James is just helping us see all of what it means. That's why James is to the church and a blessing to us to help us understand what faith in Jesus Christ looks like and helps us to ask the right questions. Friends, your distorted view of belief cannot save you. Uttering the right words or using uh, your voice to call in the name of Jesus cannot save you. James is making it crystal clear. He is clarifying true faith. He is helping us to understand what you and I are prone to, the path of least resistance. That's what we love. We want to read the cliff notes, take the test, get it over with, and be done with that and get back to our lives and do what we want to do. That's constantly our problem. That's constantly my problem because I love myself, not the Savior. We all want to do whatever it is that we need to do and then get back to our life. If this is what true faith looks like, though, we better get it right. We must receive the gospel and preach it to ourselves and enjoy its benefits and repent of sin and, and preach to ourselves again and react to it and, and live in a way that's consistent with the gospel. In other words, we don't like to use this word, but it's really good. We ought to be religious people, religious about Jesus, that it dominates us, that our friends and family say they're religious about Jesus. They're constantly 
checking everything underneath that rubric that he's most important in their life. That's what ought to dominate us, is Jesus, not tradition. We ought to be people then that are, like I said, dominated or conquered by our Savior, Jesus Christ. Even if it seems weird to your friends or to your family or to your coworkers, it is weird because you do not do the same things that they do. They're hearers only, or they just outright deny him. But being a doer of the word sees that he is most valuable. And in the end, no other safety net will catch you. It is Christ and Christ alone. Jesus is not a part of life. He is life. Brothers and friends, this is not a message to scare you. But if you are scared, run to Christ. That's what you ought to do. This is a call for you to get serious about what it means to be a real Christian. This is a call to salvation and perseverance. Receive the implanted word that is able to save your souls. This means persevering in looking and in your doing, treasuring Christ, treasuring his word. Let us then be doers of the word. Let's pray. God, we worship you today. We want our hearts to be receiving the implanted word so that our actions are consistent with the truth. Jesus, would you come work in our hearts so that we might do what you have called us to do, so that we are consistent with who you are, and so that when people see what's outside, it matches, not trying to make fake fruit, but rather obey you, love you, know you. May this be a call to persevere and to love you, the God of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For other sermons on the book of James and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.